Hello, lovely. It's Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is End Human Trafficking. So y'all know I'm a big fan of deep personal transformation on every different level and definitely a fan of shifting our frequency. And this is not just an individual journey, but it's a collective journey for all of us. Every time somebody shifts their energy or is able to heal wounds, we all experience a shift. And so today we're going to be talking uh, to the executive director of Ally Global, which is supporting uh, survivors of human trafficking in really creating new foundations for their life and being able to provide education for them and resources and a place to live so that they can really grow and expand in their life. And I feel like it's a beautiful mission. I'm part of this mission through a group they have called The Refuge. And so we're going to be diving into some of that in just a moment. Also, I wanted to announce that we will be opening the doors pretty soon to the Soul Frequency Experience. And we just completed an incredible group. It was just an amazing group of beautiful souls that just graduated from TSFE um, just about a week ago. And we started in February. It was the most amazing journey. I think sometimes it's really surprising for everybody what can happen in six weeks and how deep this this bond and this connection grows in the six-week period of time. But I just want to share some of the words um, that people use to describe this experience. They used words like life-changing, awakening, insightful, changing um, every part of their life, um, the way they see themselves. Someone said it was unlike anything I've ever done. Another person said, pure magic. It's everything my soul needed. Uh, Someone else said, this has been an incredible heart opening journey. Um, Another beautiful response we got was life-changing, transformative, safe, remarkable, mind-blowing, love on steroids, otherworldly, profound, surreal, gentle, inviting, sacred, authentic, and beautiful. So this has been just the biggest honor for me to lead this group. And I am very excited to call forward the soul family that is going to come into uh, the next groups of the soul frequency experience. So if you wanted to join us in February and you didn't get to the best place for you to be and make sure you don't miss this is at the soulfrequency.com forward slash waitlist. If you are on the wait list, you also um, will have the opportunity for some special bonuses as well as we open up the doors. You will also be first in line. Isn't it fun to be first in line, right? I love being first in line. Um, So you'll be first in line. Uh, We do have a limited amount of spaces for the Soul Frequency Experience. It's a very... um, 
small group experience. So everybody knows each other and um, yeah, we'll look forward to giving you more information on that soon, but definitely get on the wait list um, if you're thinking about taking the journey with us. So uh, today, Randy is with me on the show. And as I mentioned, he's the executive director and founder of Ally Global. In his role, he oversees the vision and direction of the charity focused on empowering national leaders in the countries where Ally works. He's an accomplished entrepreneur. Randy has founded multiple businesses and projects in both the for-profit and nonprofit sectors over the last decade. Alongside fundraising teams, Randy has raised millions for development projects in Haiti, Iraq, Uganda, Nepal, and India. He's led over 30 international volunteer teams in 14 countries. Randy has his postgraduate diploma in project management and a red seal in carpentry. Randy lives with his wife, Jamie, and pup Harley in Vancouver. So with no further ado, welcome Randy Watson to the show. Randy, welcome to the show. I'm happy you're here with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I'm really excited to learn more. I'm a part of Ally Global in a small little way um, through the refuge, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I am excited to sit down with you because I'm very passionate um, about ending human trafficking and all of the work that you guys are doing and really how you're focusing on not just the part of the rescue, but how to really rebuild and create beautiful lives for people and a future for people. And so for those that don't know about your mission and about you, I would love for you to just share a little bit about um, what led up to you founding Ally Global and, and kind of a little bit about your personal journey. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I, um, as a, uh, a young, a young man, I, I kind of was introduced to, uh, to the issue and, uh, in my late teens and, um, I didn't really have a category for it. I didn't know what human trafficking was. It didn't make sense to me. I grew up in a small, small town, uh, on the West coast of Canada and I hadn't been exposed to much. And so when I first heard about it, I, uh, was, was quite overwhelmed and um, and didn't know where to start, but I, I made the commitment to to try to learn. And uh, over the the coming years, found out more about the issue, more about how uh, it was happening in our country, um, and then also how um, the consumption and uh, things that were taking place in. A North American context was leading to increased trafficking in developing countries, and so um, I I just made a commitment to to continue to learn about it. And uh, over time, that developed into meeting individuals that were uh, uh, had been trafficked, uh, or individuals that were involved on the front lines of different organizations, and. Uh, the organizations specifically that I got to to know at the beginning of kind of my journey in this space uh, were all doing rescue uh, specific work, and uh, I was able to see that incredible work that they were doing. And uh, um, and at at the beginning, I, I was running businesses, and so for me, I was able to just financially partner with those organizations, and uh, and was was thankful to be able to, to work in this space in that way. Um, 
but a few years later, um, I guess in 2015, I um, there was a there was an earthquake that took place in Nepal, and um, I at that time had a construction company and um, uh, took a bunch of trades uh, overseas to just help with rebuilding efforts uh, there after the earthquake, and and we ended up getting billeted or hosted uh, by a safe home organization, uh, which was was quite random, but because of just the state of structures in the in the city that we were in, uh, they had space and they welcomed us in. And that was my first real like up close exposure to the aftercare side of this work. And um, through the through the time there, I was able to meet um, a, a bunch of young women that had come through uh, trafficking in different ways uh, and had now committed their lives to helping restore other survivors like them. And through that process and meeting those uh, those brave women, I I knew that that was the space that I wanted to figure out how to be in, how to uh, get behind and support people that were really on the front lines, specifically overseas, uh, in places where maybe the resources weren't as easy to come by. And uh, and that really is how Ally started. So, um, yeah, it was started uh, on the the premise of, of standing beside and behind um, national leaders, specifically women that are providing a long-term aftercare uh, for survivors. And so you mentioned, you know, some some groups are really about the actual rescue and then some are about the long care. Like, can you describe the difference about the focus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like any um, like, like any issue, there's a lot of different complexities and a lot of different skill sets needed in um, in the specific aspects of, of the work. And so um, the the organizations that are focused on rescue, um, they're usually working with local law enforcement. They have um, more expertise on maybe the tactical side or on the legal uh, and investigative side. And so they're working to to find out where brothels are or where um, traffickers may be operating, uh, working with local authorities, and then bringing those, um, the victims that are in those places to a, to a safe place. But for most rescue organizations, that's kind of where their work stops. They, their work is really heavy on the investigative side in order to prosecute uh, the abusers. And then they uh, move into a rescue phase. And then from there, they're, they're taking those victims to either a short-term or long-term facilities. Um, and in my experience um, over the past decade, uh, working in a number of different countries, that's kind of where I saw the, the growing gap was because there's um, on the short term care side, it's usually maybe a, a six months maximum uh, a stay where people would, would be rescued and then put into a short term facility. Um, but people that are rescued can range from, uh, in our case, as young as two years old. Uh, up to, you know, into um, their late 40s. And so the range of care obviously uh, varies quite significantly. And so when we, um, when we were looking at starting, we saw that this long-term care need is actually um, 
is so great and it's it's not as appealing to quite honestly to a western uh, donor base because it's not as um, the metrics aren't maybe don't look as good because you have an individual coming into care and that same individual could be in care for 10 12 15 years um, whereas if you look at the rescue side of the work it's it's ongoing operations that are happening usually you know every month or two uh, with new people so um, that's pretty high level but that's some of the differences yeah and how common is trafficking like do we does the average citizen let's say anywhere in the u.s canada you know anywhere understand how deep this issue is you know i don't i don't think so i think this past year there's been a lot more attention to the issue in uh, the u.s and canada um, there's a lot of uh, misinformation around the issue but I think the average person is is relatively unaware about how it happens within their own country. Uh, definitely, what it looks like within uh, the majority of communities, um, and I think it's common that people think, "Oh, well, this is something that happens in you know Thailand or Southeast Asia somewhere," um, but they don't know how to like draw those parallels to what it looks like uh, at home, which is understandable. Um, but yeah, it is it is prevalent uh, in in Canada and the U.S. Um, in in every state and province, um, and there's there's really incredible organizations that are working nationally um, to combat it. Uh, but the I'd say the biggest problem is that there is not enough uh, awareness. There's not enough uh, education um, of the general public, which uh, in a developing context where we have um, the policing structures um, and the social infrastructure, if the general public was more aware, we could actually curb the issue uh, much easier than we can in a developing context. And what about the work, like what about in Nepal? Like what's the difference between what goes on, let's say here in the US where I am or in Canada where you are versus a place like Nepal? Yeah, I think um, your vulnerable populations are, are much bigger, uh, would be probably one of the biggest things. So you have uh, relatively no middle class and a massive uh, low income class where people are either still trading in goods or they're making, you know, under under five dollars a day. Uh, and so vulnerabilities uh, in any country are what traffickers exploit. And uh, in Nepal specifically, it's it's one of the, the lower developed countries in Asia. And so um, there's a lot of people that are um, that need opportunity. And so um, traffickers exploit those those weaknesses. I'd say that's probably the largest um, the largest issue. The other uh, issue in Nepal is uh, there's been more recent civil conflict, um, civil war, um, and so anytime you have a, a nation that has that like unrest, it's another thing that traffickers can exploit because um, the government, the legal systems aren't really in, in a place that they're robust enough to uh, create a strong enough barrier. Uh, and so that's something that we're seeing actually getting worse in Nepal is um, there's uh, because the surrounding countries actually like India are starting to increase their prevention and prosecution 
uh, traffickers that were once taking kids from Nepal into India uh, are seeing that risk and they're starting to do more domestic trafficking because there's less prosecution in that country. So um, it really is uh, complex, obviously, uh, politically and socioeconomically, uh, how the issue plays out in different regions. Uh, but in Nepal specifically, yeah, it's a it's a mix of poverty, uh, of corruption, and lack of uh, legal infrastructure. Yeah, that makes sense. And and what does it look like when let's say you bring in you know a child? Are they staying you know with with the help of your resources in a safe house to be raised and educated? Like, what's the ultimate goal of of really caring about them long term? Yeah, so we have. Um, we operate safe homes for for long long term care. Our goal is to to get each individual back to the point where they're um, like a reintegrated adult into community that's uh, sustaining themselves. Uh, and so each kid that comes into our care uh, receives all of the the counseling and medical needs um, as kind of their priority trauma uh, care. Uh, but then they're also enrolled in school. Um, and then they have um, 24 seven uh, access to all the different services that we provide. Um, our goal with them is to get them through uh, their uh, secondary school and then for them to choose uh, vocationally what direction they wanna go. Maybe that's a trade, uh, maybe they wanna go into medicine or social work or architecture. We have uh, young women in all of those fields right now. Uh, and we'll sponsor them through uh, their university college scholarships uh, to the point where they can get employed. And that's a, a really huge priority for us is making sure that um, they're able to sustain themselves. So that is such a beautiful gift that it's just gorgeous. Like, I mean, I think, you know, I, from my perspective and and the work that I do, it's, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to have the person have like the awareness or let's say in your situation, get out of the situation, but then how do you rebuild? Right. And how do you create somebody who doesn't go back into maybe the only thing they've ever known in their life and really create a new world for themselves? And I think that's, what's really beautiful about you guys and what you're, um, what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. I think one thing to add there too is um, I mean, it looks different in each country, but uh, again, Nepal specifically, because you're working within a caste system and, um, you know, a system that maybe, I, I think there can be caste systems in every country where they have different labels, but um, you, the, the young women that we get or the kids that we get that come through care, um, they're, they're usually from a lower caste, but additionally, if it's ever been uh, made public that they have gone through what they've gone through, they're kind of seen as like a delete in society or like an untouchable and unwanted person. And so uh, the chance of success for them, if they don't have uh, like a real advocate um, is, is quite difficult. And so I'd say like, that's one of the things that I'm most proud of, of our national team is that there's they kind of strip away all of the stigma and other labels and, and enable people to actually have um, like kind of newfound identity, which I think is really uh, important. That's beautiful. Do people stay in, in their home country? Like, and are they able to get jobs, you know, based on, you know, what's going on in let's say Nepal? Yeah. Yeah. For them, um, 
uh, it's important. Like we're set up now um, in all the countries where we work in in Nepal, Cambodia, and Laos. We're in a major city center, uh, and so that's to enable the people that come through recovery to have access to employment. Um, which, if they're in rural parts of some of these countries, uh, work is harder to find. So, um, yeah, we have kind of individual uh, relationships with other social ventures that are in the countries we're working in where we can offer access to employment, which is really great. That's wonderful. And is there, um, you hear things about, well, I've heard things about international, you know, kind of trafficking rings that touch, you know, many different countries. Do you see from your perspective that that is going on or are these located, you know, is it different from country to country? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that, um, yeah, we see it. It looks different in each context. I can kind of s- separate it out. Um, in Nepal, we see uh, trafficking domestically and then to India and the Middle East. Um, I'd say it's about 50% domestic and 50% uh, international that we see in the cases we work with. Um, in our work in Laos, there's a lot of um trafficking into China. A lot of young kids, I'd say uh, under 14, are are bought as child brides. Uh, and so it's really common to see, um, I'd say, yeah, again, about half of our cases are trafficked into China. Uh, in Cambodia, a lot of the trafficking we see is for um, uh, is a, a mix between sex work and like domestic servitude. So uh, young girls mostly are trafficked into the surrounding countries, often to work for uh, expatriate families. Um, and and then there's additional um, trafficking into brothels or like beer parlors is a really common uh, a common place that that sex tourism happens. And so uh, it looks a little bit different in each kind of source country, um, but it definitely is. Um, trafficking into the surrounding countries and then the consumption or the use of those services is often done by a mix of national people and uh and international uh, tourists and so what if from your perspective and all that you know about the subject and you know definitely being very engaged in it like what do you kind of go to bed at night thinking if people understood these dynamics or if people understood what we're facing or if people understood the magnitude, like what is it for you that you feel like maybe most people don't understand about this? Yeah, that's a, that's a deep question. Um, I think the, the issue can be quite crippling and overwhelming if you don't see the hope uh, in the restorative side. Um, I think for me, that's the that's what drives me to to continue because the the issue can be quite overwhelming. I think um, what's missing from the general public is the understanding of how things are interconnected. Um, that it's unfortunately trafficking is just like any other business where there is supply to meet a demand, and the demand is being created. Uh, through mostly Western nations that have high rates of consumption. So um, the products we purchase, um, if we're not aware of the supply chain to create that product, uh, there's likely some form of uh, trafficking in that. 
uh, product creation. And maybe it's not sex trafficking, but it's labor trafficking where kids are being used to create something and they're not being paid for it. Um, that same thing happens uh, on the sex trafficking side is there's there's people that maybe travel or uh, uh, use uh, sex tourism in a way that they're engaging maybe with uh, what they see as something that's consensual or what they see as something that's like uh, maybe they they are soliciting services from an adult, but they don't realize that that adult has been trapped in that place for maybe the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, and so I think it's it's a lack of overall understanding of how things are interconnected. Um, and, you know, as our world and society is in, increasingly uh, increasingly connected and globalized, like there's that uh, that problem is, I'd say, is at the root of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. You bring up some good points. And what do you what do you feel is necessary? And and do you think it's even possible to eradicate this? And like I'm sure you have these thoughts, even if they're just when you're by yourself. Like how how do we end this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think to be honest, I, I see a lot of messaging and marketing about about ending uh trafficking and ending um, slavery in, in its various forms. I, I think the reality is, uh, as we see around the world, there's always going to be a failed state or a, a country that's at war. Um, and in those in extreme vulnerabilities in nations, that's obviously where trafficking thrives. We saw that, um, you know, what in the recent conflicts in, in Syria and the Middle East and the mass immigrant uh, movements of migrants there and and refugees, and there is so much trafficking that has happened and continues to happen uh, in the, in that region. Um, I think what we can do is we can push for stronger uh, enforcement, uh, trade laws. Um, it's something that the U.S. has done incredibly well in the last decade. is is actually sanction countries where they see that they don't have the right um, level of prevention or prosecution. Um, they, the U.S. has been like mandating those laws be increased, those pre prevention programs be increased in order to actually uh, do trade with the U.S. So I think it has to it has to come from a, a, a fairly high level where we're we're calling uh, each other as nations to a higher standard. Uh, and then when we see a failed state happening, uh, knowing that, hey, this is going to be something that's going to uh that's going to be exploited. There's going to be exploitation that happens here, and so we need to be aware of that and 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 come around those countries uh, in a way that's compassionate to to what's happening. But yeah, I think there's there's definitely a, a way to end it, but it's it, it is going to take more of a collective effort um, across a lot of countries, and that really starts by individuals being aware, uh, and then talking with their elected official about what's happening in their city and in their uh, states, and then uh, continuing to elevate the issue. And, and I think that's something that we've seen in this last year is, is quite a significant increase in that conversation. Yeah, agreed. Definitely. And, and how, for anyone listening that feels like they want to be, um, you know, part of this answer and to support this, how can they support the work that you guys are doing? Yeah, if, if you're passionate about uh, this issue, then uh, for sure, as I kind of mentioned, like be involved in uh, informing yourself 
uh, reach out to us for resources um, about education around the issue. Um, or if you if you're wanting to find somebody that's really local to your city, reach out to us and we'll help you with that. But uh, if you're interested in in actually helping in the long term recovery process, yeah, our, our our program we have is called the Refuge, and the Refuge is a dedicated community of monthly supporters uh, who are passionate about that long term uh, hope, healing, and opportunity for survivors. And people that join that enable us to really make sure that we're able to meet the commitments uh, of the kids in our care and also expand. So we have about 250 individuals in full-time care right now um, across the three different countries that we're working in internationally. And, uh, and, it, and it costs us about 200 to $250 per month to provide the services each one of those individuals need. So uh, if you're interested in financially supporting, uh, that's the best way for us to be able to meet those needs of those individuals. And tell them where they can find the info on the refuge. Yeah, you can go, you can find that on our website at allyglobal.org slash the refuge. Um, and any, anything else that you're, uh, any other questions that you would have, please, please reach out to us and we're, we're happy to, to answer them. That's so wonderful. So I, like I said, I'm a part of the refuge. I was excited when I saw it come out. I've talked to your team about it. Um, and I just think it's a really nice way to support the long-term process. Like in my work, I know all about the long-term process of transformation. You know, we don't, we don't change the mindsets, the traumas, the wounds, the healing, all of that doesn't happen in a day, but truly it does happen when you have people that care and that are willing to show up and give you the resources to, you know, to change your life, to change your future. And so I just want to, you know, say thank you to you for the work that you guys are doing. I think it's so valuable and important when one life gets changed, you know, everyone they contact, right? Everyone they come across, the world becomes just a better and healthier place. So thank you for creating what you did. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for your support and for, yeah, for just believing in this process. I'm Shauna Lee, and you've been listening to the Soul Frequency Show podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Soul Frequency. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. Join me next week for more powerful awakenings and positive vibes.